In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum jamian wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome once again to our series, Life, the Islamic Answer, where we are currently discussing the theme of rationality, reason, knowledge in Islam. You will remember that we had reached the point where we were talking about the importance of understanding who to accept as a scholar or a teacher, and to view this discussion not only externally, looking at someone else and what characteristics and what attributes we have to find in them, but the moment we start to acquire knowledge in Islam, it means that we have to find ourselves somewhere in that path. And so when we're talking about the traits or the characteristics of the scholar or the teacher, we are also talking about ourselves. We have to see to what extent these traits, these characters, we find ourselves in them. We have to aspire to be, to become all those traits, to find these traits in ourselves. We had reached the point the last time that we met, two weeks ago, our last discussion, we looked at two points. We looked at narrations that covered two points. The first one was a narration from the Holy Prophet when he was talking about understanding that the moment you become a good Muslim, there will be people who want to follow you. And the hadith, the Holy Prophet was telling his companions 14 centuries ago, there will be people who will be your followers and they will come to you from the ends of the earth. And so the Holy Prophet is giving very clear instructions. Be kind and be good to them. And so these are part of the traits, the characteristics that the Holy Prophet wants to find in his followers. And we have to find in anyone who teaches, they have to teach with kindness and with mercy. And understand that what you have is something very valuable. Even if you may not have studied for a long time in this religion, the Holy Prophet is talking to all his followers. He's telling them there will be people. At that time, Islam was not a worldwide religion yet. And he's telling his people, people will come to you to learn from you from the ends of the earth. And so when they do, be kind and be patient and make sure that you remind each other Make sure that you remind each other to be good towards them. And so this means that there's a collective dimension, it's not just individual, that together we have to work towards making sure that these teachings are reaching others. That was one discussion that we had. The second discussion was from a hadith coming to us from Imam Sajjad Imam Zayl when he is talking about the rights as you will remember, Imam Sajjad left us this legacy called the Treatise of Rights, the Treaty of Rights, in which he explains the rights that different individuals in society have upon each other, 
even the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the rights of your body parts upon you, and so on and so forth. And in there, at some point, Imam Sajjal at some point he talks about the right of the young, the right of anyone who is younger than you. And we saw that the Imam says that the main right towards someone who is younger than you is that you are merciful towards them, that you show them mercy. And then the Imam explains in what way do you show mercy? If you guys remember, Imam Sajjad says, you show them mercy in teaching them. That was the first trait that the Imam says. And this is once again a reminder of the importance of teaching and knowledge in our religion. We may come up with all sorts of ways to think that this is the best way to show mercy to a child or to your own child. Imam Sajjad says the best way, the exemplary way to show that mercy to the child is to teach them. And then he goes into more detail. And we said in Arabic, it could mean two things. It could mean the Imam is saying, you show them mercy while you teach them. So be patient, be kind, be gentle, be merciful when you teach them. That's one meaning. And there's a much more deep meaning, which is you show them mercy by teaching them. The act of teaching them itself is the mercy. Yes, of course you have to be merciful and patient and good while you teach them. But more important than that is that you show them mercy by teaching them, by making sure that the knowledge, the values, the principles, the beliefs actually get to them. And you learn from, and they learn from you in that way. That was the last discussion we had. So inshallah, today we continue. We are now, I think, at lesson 23, 24 of the characteristics of this teacher or scholar. We're trying to wrap it up. So inshallah, today we're gonna add one more dimension. Inshallah, we'll have time to finish it. And it's a dimension we started to talk about earlier. In this next hadith, you're going to see that it talks about a couple of points that we've talked in depth and in detail about, so we're not gonna comment on them. We want to focus on the last part. Imam Sadiq alayhi salam, he says, قام عيسى ابن مريم عليه السلام في بني إسرائيل فقال يا بني إسرائيل لا تحدثوا بالحكمة الجهال فتظلموها ولا تمنعوها أهلها فتظلموهم ولا تعينوا الظالم على ظلمه فيبطل فضلكم. Imam Sadiq alayhi salam says, Prophet Isa السلام, Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him and our, upon our Holy Prophet, he stood amongst Bani Israel, amongst his people, and he said, O children of Israel, do not speak of wisdom to the fools, for if you do, you would have acted unjustly towards wisdom. And then he said, and do not withhold it from its rightful people, the people of wisdom, don't hold it back, share it with them. Because if you do not, then you would have been unjust to them. And then, so those parts we've talked about at length in the past. Who do you talk to? Who do you share with? And how do you share this information? What's the best way? It's not just because you know something that you have to be talking about it to everyone you encounter all the time in any way. 
right? And we went through a lot of hadith that talk about this. The wisdom of what you say, when do you say it, how do you say it, and to whom do you say it. The point of this hadith for us today is to add the social and political dimension that we wanted to cover quickly in today's lecture, and that's it, we will wrap up this topic. Prophet Isa added, after those two statements that we've covered, and he said, and do not support the oppressor in his oppression, lest, you, lest your favor is nullified. You have favor. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed a favor upon you by giving you knowledge. If the way you're using that knowledge is to support the oppressor, is to allow the oppressor to continue in his oppression, then your favor, this divine favor that you have, which is knowledge, is now nullified. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cancels out all of the favor that you have by carrying the knowledge, by being a scholar, by being someone who is knowledgeable. This trait is something we started to talk about many, many lectures ago, when we started to talk about the importance of knowledge. And how, when Islam talks about scholars, this is a warning that it repeatedly states, all the time. The moment you have knowledge, be careful from a few things. One of them is, be careful that this knowledge is not being used to help those who oppress. Ensure that your knowledge is not helping oppression leading to more oppression. And we had lengthy discussions about why. Why does Islam focus on this? We said from the beginning, Islam focuses on anyone who gains power in society. And it adds a lot of warnings. One of the powers in society is that you have money. Money means power in society. You can do a lot more if you have money than if you don't. Islam doesn't say don't get money. It says go get all the money you want. But there are warnings. Don't abuse of that power that you now have. Make sure that it's always contributing to the good. Make sure that it doesn't contribute to evil and bad and corruption. So there's a lot of reminders about that. Another form of power in society, today this is considered very modern, very progressive thought. That knowledge itself is power. Islam talked about that 14 centuries ago. And so, warnings. It doesn't say don't get knowledge. No, it says go and go get all the knowledge you can. But warning, now you have power that other people don't have. So one of the warnings is, make sure that this is not going to be used for evil, for wrong, you now have an extra responsibility that the person who doesn't carry the knowledge doesn't have. You have knowledge. You have to see where, what are you contributing to with that knowledge? What is it leading to? Is it leading to more good in society? Is it leading directly to those who oppress to oppress more? You're enabling them? And we've said throughout history, you go back through the centuries, you see that those who are in power and political rule is a form of power, and Islam talks about that. And more warnings, the moment you are in a position of ruling over others, if you have political authority over others, you govern, you rule. Those who are in positions of power usually quickly realize that there are people who have a lot of knowledge in society, and that will contribute to their own power if they know how to use them. 
And so they are usually either generous with them or they create conditions where they force them to use them, to use that knowledge that they have. This is well known. And so Islam pinpointed this from the beginning. And you see these constant reminders in its teachings. If you have knowledge, make sure that you are careful in who is benefiting from the knowledge that you are sharing. And make sure that it is not contributing to more oppression. And that it is not the oppressor who is becoming greater and more powerful in his oppression because of your knowledge. And one point, because we already saw a number of hadith, a number of narrations that specifically spoke about this warning that your knowledge should not contribute to more oppression. And in those we noticed a trait that is not here in this hadith. In all of those other hadith, many of them, the imams were trying to tell us not everyone who claims to be a scholar and knowledgeable should be trusted and you should open your mind and your heart to them just because they carry knowledge, they carry information. You have to distinguish between the true scholar and the fraudster. And the distinction is not how much knowledge they carry. It's how are they going to affect your soul. That was the distinction. And how am I supposed to know that? They all carry information. So we have to look at other traits. You'll remember some of them. How much importance does this person give to the afterlife? How much importance do they give to this world? How much do they contribute to oppression in society? This was a trait. I want to recognize the true scholar from the fraudster. One of the main traits was, how much are they helping the oppression? How much do they stand against the oppression? Not how much knowledge they have. There's a lot of people who can carry a lot of knowledge. What are they doing with that knowledge? What does it contribute to? Okay, this is what we had covered, and so we see it in this hadith again. Now, there's a couple of points I wanted to mention here very quickly. The first one is that, at the end of this hadith, I'm not going through all the details, but I know some of you are very interested in this, and so I mentioned them. At the end of this hadith, it says Al-Khabar in Arabic. So I just wanted to add a couple of technical details here, because we hear these words, we use them interchangeably in this series, in our lectures. But there's a few technical terms that come again and again in the hadith. What's the difference between them? There's khabar, there's sunnah, there is hadith, there's athar. Why, why are these different words used? You can use them interchangeably and say they're all synonyms. They kind of all of them mean the same thing. But if you want to be a little bit more technical, you have to see whether the scholar who's using it means that technical meaning. Khabar means we're, be, we're being informed about something that was said or done by the Ma'asum, by the infallible, by the Holy Prophet That's one definition. So it's not the actual words of the Prophet or the actual act that we are being told. We're being told about it, just like in this case. It's like you're hearing a story. We've gone through a lot of these hadith where we're told, for instance, the companions say, we went to perform the pilgrimage and we entered and we saw Imam Sadiq sitting and we went and asked him. That's a khabar. We're getting a story. We're being told 
then the Imam said this, the Imam said something, or the Imam did this, and we asked him, and then we left. That's a khabar. Right? Because we're being informed in general about something that was said or done by the Masum. That's one way khabar is used. The second way khabar is used is that it's not the Holy Prophet saying. Some scholars in the Shi'i school reject this, some scholars accept this. You see many books of our Imam, the, the sayings of the Imams, they carry the title, in their title they carry khabar or akhbar. Al-Akhbar. Al-Akhbar, or we have a whole school of thought called Al-Akhbariyin. The reference is to what? The emphasis is on what? The emphasis here is on the sayings of the Imams, not the sayings of the Holy Prophet. This is a distinctive feature. They say this is a khabar, as opposed to a hadith. Hadith is the Holy Prophet, a khabar is from the Imams. Not all scholars use it this way, but this is a well-known usage. Okay? And then, there is also, if you go back in the books of, the technical books of hadith, sometimes they use this term with ahad. Ahad is when there are not a lot of narrators in the chain of narration, there's only one person, maybe two, who have narrated a hadith. And so you can't say that there are, you know, it's like an event that happened and you have 10 people who witnessed it and each one of us is gonna go and repeat that event to others. This is what's called mutawatir, right? It's repeated by independent sources. And so they corroborate each other and you say the likelihood that they are all lying is very low. But if you have only one person who narrates a hadith, you call that ahad. And so it puts it in a very doubtful category. We need something to help us corroborate it. And usually when they say ahad, they always use the term khabar. They say khabar ahad. So sometimes the use of khabar is to weaken the authenticity of a hadith. Okay? This is something to keep in mind. Of course, sunnah, sunnah means that the person who says this is sunnah, to them it's well established that this is something that the Holy Prophet did or said, for sure. They're very sure of that, so they call that a sunnah. For instance, when you see a book called Sunan, Sunan al-Nabi, Sunan al-Tirmidhi, Sunan ibn Majah, Right? He says, this is what I, I've looked at the whole life of the Holy Prophet. These are the things that I believe he truly said or he truly did. Okay, and so therefore, we can follow them. That's what we do. In addition to that, sometimes we have the term hadith. Hadith is specifically about the sayings of the Prophet. So it's sunnah, but sunnah can also be the act of the Prophet. Right? They would say, like, it's sunnah of the Prophet, that he, when he would laugh, you don't see his teeth generally, or you don't hear him laugh, you see him smiling. Okay, that becomes a sunnah, that becomes a recommended act, for instance. Or that when he would drink water, he doesn't drink a lot of water in one shot. He makes it into three sips. Okay, that becomes a sunnah. These are very, you know, simple recommendations, but you see this, is a, this becomes a sunnah. Okay, some of them are very important acts, some of them are very trivial acts. Okay, and then you have ethar. Ethar is simply something that is said that is not from the Prophet. So they, for instance, it might be the companions of the Prophet. Or in our school, sometimes ethar is also used as khabar. The sayings of the Imams, or anyone else. You might say, there is an ethar, there is a saying that came to us from Abu Dhar. Amazing companion of the Holy Prophet, but he's not an infallible 
He's not a source of knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to us. He's just a really good human being who lived at the time of the Holy Prophet, who did everything like the Holy Prophet wanted him to do. And so we want to follow him as a role model, but we're not going to put him on the same level as the Holy Prophet. Right? And so they distinguish between his saying, they say, well, this is an ethel. Right? So that when you see it, you don't say this is a hadith. This is an ethel. This is someone who is very good for us, that we respect, that we want to emulate. This is reported from them. In any case, very quickly. We move to the next hadith. The duties of the teacher. We're still on that topic. And we are now focusing on this social slash political other dimension. There is this hadith attributed to the Holy Prophet in which he says, if or when innovations appear in my nation, innovations meaning there are things that are changing what people understand as being religion or not religion, being truth and not truth. Okay, so when innovations appear in my nation, let the scholar manifest his knowledge, make his knowledge known. Because that knowledge is supposed to be truth. And truth is now becoming ambiguous. It's confused. People are no longer able to recognize what is truth. They're questioning it. It's not clear. So he says, let his knowledge become manifest. Let him show his knowledge. This is when he shows his knowledge. For if he does not, the curse of God is upon him. This hadith is not very authentic. It's very well known. It's a very popular hadith. It's narrated a lot. But it's difficult to find a full, authentic chain of transmission all the way to the Holy Prophet for this hadith. But I think it's important that we mention it because it's so well known and that we add this comment to it so that we know. Okay, the second thing related to this hadith is that when the Holy Prophet says this, this is something that should go without saying. So why does the Holy Prophet go out of his way to say this? Because this is not always something easy to do. This is an extra burden. This is an additional burden upon the scholar that he now has to tackle a topic, an issue that has become maybe controversial, that has become confusing for people. There are different camps, different theories, different thoughts. The whole Prophet says, but this is your responsibility. You carry that knowledge. That knowledge comes with a responsibility. You have to show your knowledge here. If it's true that the truth is becoming lost, the truth is becoming confused. People are not able to distinguish this is right, this is wrong. This is true, this is untrue, falsehood. Okay? The second point, and this is something we talked about at length, we spent a few lectures on this, is that of course, all of this always has to be done. We called it in one word, with wisdom. It's not just because you know that you have to talk. You have to see what's the most appropriate way for you to present the knowledge that you have. Who do you talk to? In what way? Which knowledge do you present? At what time? And what's the most effective way for that knowledge to actually influence people? To make them see the truth you're trying to see or change whatever you're trying to change. And we're going to see a very clear example of this a little bit later. Regarding the same topic, however, we said this hadith is not very authentic. 
But there are hadith that are considered authentic, depending on whether you look at the Sunni school or the Shi'i school. The Sunni school, there's two hadith that are considered authentic. So I wanted to go through them, and then I'll add the two Shi'i narrations that have to do with the same topic. And it's easy to compare the point of view of these hadith. In the Sunni school, we have this hadith in some of their narrations, some of their scholars, they say that this is a hadith that is authentic. And in another version, so the Holy Prophet in this narration, he would be saying, if innovations arise, and the latter of this nation, those of this nation who will come at the end, will curse the former, those who just came before them. If there are so many innovations happening that those who come after are now cursing those who came before them because they're basically blaming them for these innovations, then whoever possesses knowledge should manifest that knowledge, should make that knowledge clear, spread it. For the one who conceals knowledge at that time is no different than the one who conceals what was revealed to Muhammad This is what the Holy Prophet is saying. In one way, if you go through the commentaries about this hadith, it's in short talking about fitan or the calamities and the difficulties and the issues that become very confusing for most people when they happen. Okay, and that's a whole category of hadith related to that. Perhaps it's related to the end of times, perhaps not. Okay, so this is one uh, point. The second point is the reference that the Holy Prophet is making. Here he is making a clear reference to a number of verses in the Holy Quran that talk about those who conceal that which was revealed to Muhammad. That's how he ended the hadith, sallallahu What did he mean by that? He's referring to verses of the Quran that talk about those who concealed what they knew about what is being revealed. What is being revealed? The Holy Quran. What did they know? In الَّذِينَ يَكْتُمُونَ مَا أَنزَلْنَا مِنَ الْبَيْنَاتِ وَالْهُدَى مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا بَيَّنَّاهُ لِلنَّاسِ فِي الْكِتَابِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about those who were at the time of the Holy Prophet, who knew that a Prophet would be sent. They knew the prophecies, they knew the signs, and they recognized them. And they had a lot of knowledge that could help people accept this guidance. But they hid it, they kept it concealed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in those verses, He says, those are the ones that the curse of God will be upon and the curse of the angels. Right? And those who curse. And there are multiple verses in the Quran that talk about this. The idea is the same in all of those verses. There are people who knew, but they kept their knowledge hidden. So the Holy Prophet is saying, when this is going to happen, the same pattern applies. You have knowledge, but you're keeping it to yourself, you're keeping it concealed, when you should be displaying it. You should be making it manifest so that people recognize the truth. Otherwise, the curse of God is going to be upon you. Okay? And there's multiple verses. If you want to go back, for those who are interested in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 159, uh, in Surah Al-Imran, 3, 
ويدخل الله ميثاق الذين أوتوا الكتاب لا تبينونه للناس ولا تكتمونه. Right, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala took the covenant of those who were given the book that you shall show it or display it to the people and that you will not conceal it. But of course, they broke the covenant when they initially said, "Of course, we accept the covenant." So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is talking about the same pattern, and that's why the Holy Prophet refers to that. He says, "Don't be like them." When you are at a time when there are innovations appearing and you have knowledge that can help people recognize the truth, don't fall in this category of those who concealed the truth. Then they became worthy of the curse of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Okay, that's the first hadith. The second hadith says, "In Allah, Inna Lillahi, Afwan, Inna Lillahi, Inda Kulli Bid'atin Takidul Islam wa Ahla, Man Yadubba Anha, Wa Yatakallam Bi Alamatih." فاغتنموا تلك المجالس بالذب عن الضعفاء وتوكلوا على الله وكفى بالله وكيلا. This is again a hadith that is only found in Sunni sources and it says for every innovation that undermines Islam and its people, every time an innovation that is dangerous to Islam appears, God has those who will protect. عليكم السلام ورحمة الله. God has people who will protect this religion and its people, and who explain its signs, who explain this religion to people. So seize those gatherings and defend the weak. And you remember at the beginning when we talked about knowledge, we said when you see this weakness, Islam is not talking about a physical weakness, right? When it talks about weakness in the ahadith, it's talking about weakness in belief, weakness in knowledge, weakness in argument. There is always a duty upon the scholars to help the weak. Who are the weak? The weak in knowledge. The weak are those who are influenced by the arguments that they hear, and they don't know how to counter them, and so they fall for whatever they're hearing, even though it may be evil, even though it may be falsehood. Okay. So in this case, the Holy Prophet is saying, this is going to happen. Innovations will appear. When those innovations appear. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala always will have people who will defend this religion and its people. So the Holy Prophet says, so seize those gatherings. Make sure that you are a part of those gatherings where this knowledge is being shared, so that you are benefiting from it and that the innovations are not affecting you. And defend the weak. So seize those gatherings and defend the weak. And then he says, put your trust in God, for God is sufficient as protector. We said these are two Sunni ahadith. I wanted to counter them with two Shi'i ahadith that we find about the same topic. From the Holy Prophet ﷺ, in the Shi'i sources, we find "Inna lillahi inda kulli bid'atin takunu ba'di." The Holy Prophet says, "Inna lillahi inda kulli bid'atin takunu ba'di." Yukadu bih al-iman waliyan min ahli bayti, muwakkilan bih. يذب عنه ينطق بإلهام من الله ويعلن الحق وينوره ويرد كيد الكائدين ويعبر عن الضعفاء فاعتبروا يا أولى الأبصار وتوكلوا على الله. The theme is very similar. The manner in which the hadith is said is very similar, but there are details here that are not found in the other hadith. He says, "Indeed, the Holy Prophet is saying, indeed, with every innovation that will occur after me, 
which is intended to undermine faith, right? To destroy Iman, to destroy this religion, there is an appointed leader. There is an appointed guardian from the people of my household who has been assigned to uphold the faith and to protect it, speaking with divine inspiration. He proclaims the truth. He sheds light upon it. He thwarts the plots of the plotters. He advocates for the weak. So take heed, O people of insight, and rely upon God. Okay, so the main distinction here is that in the previous hadith, there's no contradiction between the hadith, by the way. Both of them are saying, in general, the same thing. It's in the details that they differ. In general, the Holy Prophet is saying, there will be innovations, there will be falsehood, when this happens, know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has people who will come to the rescue of truth. So make sure that you follow what they say. But whereas the previous hadith was more general and only said that, the second hadith, the Holy Prophet was more specific about who those people were. So when we look at them, we can only say that those traits match what we believe in our imams. And that's why we, when we began this discussion, we said as much as we want to take knowledge from those who have knowledge, the only true source of knowledge is the Imam. Everyone else, to the extent that they represent the Imam, to the extent that their teachings match the teachings of an Imam, then we accept them and we accept their teachings. Not because of who they are. We couldn't care less about who they are. They're people like you and I. What we care about is how much they represent the truth. That extent, that's sacred to us. To the extent that they represent the Quran, we accept them 100%. To the extent that what they're saying represents the teachings of Ahlul Bayt, we, we accept it as 100% truth. The rest, and this is why we spend time trying to be so meticulous, is this the teaching of Ahlul Bayt or not? Right? And so here the Holy Prophet, when you go to the Shi'i version of the Hadith, is being very clear. Who are the people who are going to come to the rescue of this faith? The Imams themselves. What about everyone else? To the extent that they represent the knowledge of the Imams. That you can say, this person carries the knowledge of the Imams. Okay? This is the first Hadith. The second Hadith. And Yunus bin Abdurrahman قال, we're gonna, we need to explain this hadith quickly because this hadith deserves a lecture on its own. I'll read it entirely in Arabic and then I'll repeat it in English. وكان عند زياد القدي سبعون ألف دينار وعند علي بن أبي حمزة ثلاثون ألف دينار قال فلما رأيت ذلك وتبين الحق وعرفت من أمر أبي الحسن الرضا عليه السلام ما علمت تكلمت ودعوت الناس إليه قال فبعث إلي وقال لي ما يدعوك إلى هذا إن كنت تريد المال فنحن نغنيك و وضمن لي عشرة آلاف دينار وقال لي كف 
فأبيت وقلت لهم إنا روينا عن الصادقين عليهم السلام أنهم قالوا the point of the hadith إذا ظهرت البدع فعلى العالم أن يظهر علمه فإن لم يفعل سلب منه نور الإيمان وما كنت لأدع الجهاد في أمر الله على كل حال فناصراني وأضمر لي العداوة So there is this companion who says I was alive at the time of Imam Al-Kawm and Imam Al-Rida His name is Yunus bin Abdurrahman So he says, now that we know this part, we know what he's, what's happening and about when in history, he says, Yunus Abdurrahman says, when Abu Al-Hasan, so he's referring to our seventh Imam, Imam Al-Kawm He says, when Abu Al-Hasan passed away, those who administered his affairs had a great wealth in their hands. We know that Imam Al-Kawm spent many years in jail. And so those who represented the Imam to the people, they controlled a lot of the affairs of the Imam. The Imam was not present among the people. The Imam was in jail. And at that time, many of the people who were followers of the Imam, their financial affairs were a lot better than they used to be in the time of previous Imams for all sorts of reasons. So people are sending their charity, their sadaqat, their khumas to these representatives of the Imam. So at the time of the death of Imam al-Kawm this narrator says, if you would go to look at the representatives of the Imam, people like you and I, who had studied religion and become scholars, and people recognize them as scholars, this narrator says, all of them still had huge amounts of money with them. Because people had given them that money to tell the Imam so that the Imam administers the affairs of his followers. But the Imam passes away and those people still have the money. So who should tell them what to do with that money? The next Imam, Imam al-Rida his son, right? What did they do? They said, this is the end. There are no more Imams. And they created a new version of religion. They became the Waqifah. And this is one version of the sects that appeared. They believed in all the Imams. But now that the Imam passes away and they find themselves carrying this huge amount of money, they decide that the money is more important. And they said, that's it. That was the last Imam. There's no more revelation and there's no more religion after this with someone appointed by God. We are the people who will represent this religion. You can come to us. The most important thing is that we keep this money that we have. Okay? And some of them even created a story that the Imam did not really pass away. He was not killed. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevated him. Or that this is in preparation for the Mahdi to appear. And, and, and. The reason I mentioned this, and I'm going very quickly here, as I said, this hadith deserves its own lecture. Is that today there are books that are being written that have appeared that emphasize these points in the history of the Shia to show that the Shia did not know who their Imam was. Right? And so they say, for instance, see, the Shia got completely confused after the death of Imam al-Kadhim, for instance. Because there are people who started following them. No, the Shia were not confused. In fact, the narration proves, they want to take this narration to prove that all the Shia were confused. The narration proves the opposite. 
This narrator says, I fought them and I became their enemy and they became my enemies. And they used their wealth and they used their power to condemn me and to create enemies to me and to make me disappear. But what did this person do? He says, no, I continued to show the truth. This is what he's going to explain. And to make people go to follow Imam al-Raba to bring them back to the truth. The truth was known. There will always be people who try to distort it. This does not prove by itself that the masses, the majority of the Shia were confused. Okay? So this is the reason I mentioned this. In any case, one day inshallah we'll go in a lot more detail here. So he says, those who administered the affairs of Imam al-Kawam had a great wealth in their hands. This was the reason for their stopping. Stopping as in waqf, he says. They stopped to believe in the next Imam. And their denial of his death. There's a group that appeared that said the Imam didn't die. Because they have a lot of money and they say the Imam died, everybody will tell them, we'll go to the next Imam to see what to do with all the money you have. At the time, Ziyad al-Qandi had 70,000 dinar. I did the calculation very quickly. When they say dinar, the weight of the dinar is known. And the dinar is a dinar of gold. So my calculation quickly means that he had about 15 million dollars. Okay, 245 kilograms of gold. So about 15 million dollars by today's standard. And Ali ibn Hamza, for those who don't know this, who don't recognize this name, the popular name that we have for him, because he's mentioned in so many hadith, this is Al-Bada'ini. Ibn Abi Hamza Al-Bada'ini. He is the inventor of a sect. He used to be a scholar, someone who represented the Imams, and overnight, he creates his own religion because of this money and nothing else. Okay? He had, he says, he had 30,000 dinar, about half, about 7 million. When I saw this, the truth became clear to me, and I became aware of Abu Hassan al-Rida. I knew where Imam al-Rida was. So I spoke out and invited people to him. They sent me messages. They sent letters and messengers. And they said, what is it that compels you to do this? If you desire wealth, we will make you wealthy and guarantee 10,000 dinars for you. We'll send you 10,000 dinars. Just don't ruin things for us. They told me to stop, but I refused and said to them, we have indeed narrated from the truthful ones. So I didn't want to take just this part because this is a point of the hadith. So this would be an ethel based on what we said. Because he's not telling us exactly which Imam is saying it. And so he's a companion who says, this is something that we're attributing from the Imams. Okay, and he would consider him to be trustworthy companion. He says, when innovations appear, it is upon the scholar to manifest his knowledge. If he fails to do so, the light of faith will be taken away from him. This is the time that you show your knowledge. And then he told them, and I am not one to abandon the struggle in the cause of God under any circumstance. So they became filled with hatred towards me and harbored enmity against me. And so this becomes a whole chapter of Islamic history that needs to be studied. We're not going to say more than what we said. Inshallah, this was enough. We leave it to another time to go into the details. I'm just going through my notes here for this hadith. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to be said about this chapter of Shia history. We're going to skip over the details. I think the point of the, the hadith is clear to all. 
Okay, we're talking about this responsibility that the scholar has to use their knowledge to make sure that people can distinguish between right and wrong, between truth and falsehood. And maybe we can end, even though this is a longer, we can make it quick, inshallah, and not take too long, and end with this last narration, and then we'll wrap up this topic as we said. This is the famous khutbah sermon from Imam Ali السلام, called Shakshabiyya. In it, the Imam talks about the social and political and knowledge responsibility of the scholar. Okay, but we need to know a little bit about the context of this khutbah. So I'll go through it very quickly, just the, the points that are relevant to what we're discussing, and we leave the khutbah to another time. So in Shakshabiyya, Imam Ali alayhi salam, at some point he says, أَمَا وَالَّذِي فَلَقَ الْحَبَّهِ وَضَرَأَ الْنَسَمَةِ لَوْ لَا حُضُورُ الْحَاضِرِ وَقِيَامُ الْحُجَّةِ بِوُجُودِ النَّاصِرِ وَمَا أَخَذَ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْعُلَمَاءِ أَلَّا يُقَارُوا عَلَى كِضَّةِ ظَالِمْ وَلَا سَغَبِ مَظْلُومْ لَأَلْقَيْتُ حَبْلَهَا عَلَى غَارِبِهَا وَلَسَقَيْتُ آخِرَهَا بِكَأْسِ أَوَّلِهَا وَلَأَلْفَيْتُمْ دُنْيَاكُمْ هَذِهِ عِنْدِي أَزْهَدُ مَنْ عَفَّةِ عَنْزِ Okay, this is the passage. When the Imam says, وَمَا أَخَذَ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْعَلَمَاءِ أَنْ لَا يُقَارُوا عَلَى كِبْضَةِ ظَالِمْ وَلَا سَغَبِ مَظْلُومِ So the Imam, this is sermon 3 in Najib Alam. Okay, it's a longer passage than the one we're reading. We're reading a small paragraph in it at the end. He says, I swear by the one who split the grain. Okay, so he starts, and this is a famous manner of swearing of Imam Ali alayhi salam. He often used this, and the Holy Quran uses, in Allah faliqul habbi wa nawa. Right? So Imam Ali alayhi salam says, Ama walladhi falaqal habbah. Okay, so he swears by the one who splits the grain to create food and to create sustenance from a grain. Right? So it's a, it's a very powerful and very eloquent manner of swearing by God. He doesn't say, I swear by God. He says, I swear by the one who split the grain and the one who wabara and nasamah. And nasamah is the light breeze, the air, the gentle air. That's the nasamah. But usually when it's used or how it's used by Imam Ali he's not talking about just air. He's talking about the air that is giving you breath, that is giving you life. So in another way, he's saying, I swear by the one who split the grain and who created the breath of life. Or the other way to understand Nesamah is who created living beings, or more especially, who created human beings. Okay, all of those can be meanings of Nesamah. So this is the swearing of the Imam. He says, were it not for the presence of the masses, لَوْلَا حُضُورُ الْحَاضِرِ If many masses had not come to me to pay their allegiance, to ask me to become the Khalifa. If the masses had not come to me, were it not for the presence of the masses, and for the conditions to have been met by the existence of supporters. If there, are, if there weren't so many supporters who now appeared for my cause and for me to become a Khalifa. So that now the Imam is listing conditions for accepting the responsibility to rule that there are enough masses and enough supporters who come, then what? And were it not for God's pledge 
with the scholars. God has a commitment. God has a deal. God has a pledge, a covenant with the scholars. The moment you carry knowledge, what's the deal that you have with God? That they do not remain silent or that they do not remain indifferent to the filled belly of the oppressor. When he says, Kibla is when your belly is completely full. You ate too much. That Yuqaru are it means that you're completely in agreement with. He says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a deal with the scholars, has a covenant, a pledge with the scholars, that they do not accept that those who are oppressors, they have this full monopoly over wealth, that they control all the means of wealth, and nor the famine of the oppressed, at the expense of those who are oppressed. They are taking the wealth of the oppressed and eating it. That's the metaphor. Right? That they do not agree on, they do not remain silent on the monopoly or the filled bellies of the oppressors and the famine of those who are oppressed. And then what the Imam says, if it weren't for these conditions, what would I have done? He says, then I would have thrown its reins over its shoulder. Now the Imam is talking about a camel. Okay, what does he mean? The camel is the khilafah. It's a metaphor for the khilafah. He says, if it were not for these conditions that Allah has imposed upon me, then what would I have done with the khilafah? If the khilafah was a camel, I would have taken the rein and I would have thrown it over its shoulder. Which means what? Which means that I don't care about it. The moment the reins are let go, the animal can go wherever it wants. Right? You no longer control the animal. You don't care about that animal. So the Imam says, I would have taken the rain and thrown it over its shoulder, let it go. And I would have, he says, and I would have served the same cup that I served the first ones, I would have served it the last ones, the ones that are now coming. What's the cup? So again, it's a candle. He's making the drink from its milk. But what's the cup that he served the first ones? The cup is that he was indifferent. That they continued to hold on to the khilafah. So he let them have it, and he didn't care. And the Imam remained in his house for 25 years without Khilafah. After the first Khalifa, the second Khalifa, the third Khalifa, what happened? Why is he suddenly accepting the Khilafah? Because of these conditions. That there are now all of these supporters that appear, and the people are begging him and compelling him and forcing him to accept the Khilafah. Otherwise, does he care about the Khilafah? No. And how does he want to use the Khilafah? Because of the pledge that God has with the scholars. That they will not accept to let those who are oppressors fill their bellies with the wealth of those who are oppressed. That's the reason. This is why he's accepting the Khilafah. So that he does this with it. That he stands up against oppression. Okay, so now we have the very clear criteria. Otherwise, the Imam says, otherwise I would have let the Khilafah go. I would have thrown its reins over its shoulders and hit the camel to let it go and I would have given them those people the same cup that I gave the first ones which is indifference I don't care about this and then he says, he adds this line and then you would have found how this life of yours not the khilafah the khilafah is one part of life now the imam is talking about life in this world all of it together to him 
He says, and you would have found how this life of yours is more worthless to me than the snot or the sneeze of a goat. I don't care about your khilafah, but there's a covenant. There's something that we can do with it that can bring great benefit in this world. Now the khilafah means something. Otherwise, this world by itself, I don't care about it. How much do you care if a goat comes and sneezes in your face? So one way to say it is a process, you know, you can imagine the process of the sneeze. The Imam is not referring to the process of sneezing. He's talking about the product of the sneeze. The snot, the mucus that flies on you. How much value do you give to that? The Imam says you will see that this world of yours is more worthless to me than the snot or the sneeze of a goat. Okay, so when we go to the point that we're trying to make, we're talking about the duties of the scholar. Here the Imam refers very clearly, he's not talking about any other function that he performs. He is now wearing which hat? He doesn't say the covenant that God took upon the Imam, that God took upon the ruler. He said, no, there is a covenant that God took upon the scholar. The person who carries knowledge, which is what? Which is that if you see the oppressor filling their belly with the wealth of those who are oppressed, then you have to stand up to it. Use your knowledge for that. Because of this, and because now, because that by itself is not enough. And that's the problem. The Imam knew this all along. The Imam didn't just wake up 25 years after the death of the Prophet to realize that God has this pledge with him as a scholar. So what's the difference? The difference is that now there are supporters. Enough people have come to enable the Imam to do something about this. So we can come up with all sorts of theories about this, as our scholars do. Because we can say the role, and we went through all the duties and all the roles of the scholar or the teacher in Islam. And we said, it's easy to look outside. We're always looking at, is that scholar doing his role? And is this one a better scholar? Or that these duties and these traits are not about other people. They're about us. Based on how much knowledge I have, this applies to me. And based on how much knowledge you have, this applies to you. Every duty, every responsibility of the scholar is applying to you to the extent that you have knowledge. The more knowledge you have, the more this applies to you. And so the Imam is saying the difference now, 25 years after the death of the Holy Prophet, the only difference is that now there are supporters. They were not there at the time of the first Khalifa. They were not there at the time of the second Khalifa. And inshallah one day we go into a lot more detail here. I don't want to spend too much time on this. Otherwise, again, this sermon deserves definitely at least one lecture, if not more, to go into a little bit more detail. It definitely deserves to be known, to be learned by heart, to be studied. The Imam, in this sermon, he gives a crash course of Islam after the Holy Prophet If you want to understand Islamic history and you have someone who understands it well, if they go through this khutbah, these few lines of Imam Ali 
you will see how in the most eloquent way he paints the full picture of what happened after the passing away of the Holy Prophet How the first Khilafah happened, how it ended, how the second Khilafah happened, how it ended, how the third Khilafah happened, how it ended from the perspective of Imam Ali He's documenting, he's giving a lesson in history. Him as a witness of what went on after the life and death of the Holy Prophet Okay, this is what we have in this khutbah. And that's why, this is what you read before all of this. And then the Imam says, and then after the third died, and I'm not going to go into the details, after the third Khalifa died, the people rushed to me, and they surrounded me from every side, up to, and this is what people need to understand, this is what the Imam says, so that we know how overwhelming the crowds were upon the Imam, he says up to the point where Imam al-Hassan and Imam al-Hussein were stepped on. Like to him, this is the criteria. This is how the people came to rush to the Imam. There's nothing greater that he can say to show that how many people came and how much they were eager to give their allegiance to the Imam. To the point where, of course, Imam al-Hassan and Imam al-Hussein were not children then. They were grown men, right? But he's saying like, to him, this is the criteria. He would have never let anyone near, come near or become a danger or become disrespectful or step on Imam Hassan or Hussein. He would say these are the children of the Prophet. And this khutbah he says, until Hattawuti al-Hassan, Imam Hassan and Imam Hussein were stepped on. And my sides were ripped, the clothes that I were wearing, I was pulled and dragged so much. And this is all people trying just to give their allegiance to the Imam asking, begging the Imam now to become the Khalifa, until my sides were ripped, he says, and until the Hassanan were stepped on. And then he adds this. He describes all of these lessons of history, he says, this is how the people came to me, so am I happy that I'm going to become your ruler when I should have become your ruler 25 years ago? No. This is what he says here. That were it not for Suddenly, the appearance of the supporters and the masses and the covenant that God has with the scholars, that I would have done the same thing to those people that I did with the ones before them. And I would have let this camel run away, this khilafah run away. And this whole world of yours is meaningless to me. It's not about this world, unless you do something good with it, unless you stand up for injustice. Now, the only things I'll end with this, otherwise there's so much more to say about this khutbah, it deserves definitely to be studied. The authenticity of the khutbah, its name, just so that we understand its significance, the end, the part right after this, one of the main narrators of this khutbah is Abdullah ibn Abbas. He's the one who says, Imam stood in Kufa in one version or in another version, a little bit outside of Kufa. And all of our big scholars who have studied this khutbah, they say this is a khutbah that the Imam would have given towards the end of his life. Because he makes references to all those that he fought as soon as he became Khalifa. So he's not delivering the sermon right after he became Khalifa. He delivers the sermon after the battle of the Kamal and after the battle of Safin and after the battle of the Khawarij. Because he refers to them in the khutbah, in one word each. But they're there. So this means this happened after, towards the very end of the life of the Imam, in Kufa or a little bit outside. So Ibn Abbas said, the Imam reaches this point in his khutbah, 
And he is saying things that no one has said openly until then. So Ibn Abbas is very happy that the Imam is actually saying this in this way. He says and then a man came to the Imam and gave him books or letters that the Imam wanted to answer. There were questions that had come to the Imam. So the Imam wanted to answer them. So he stopped talking and was about to come down. So Ibn Abbas said, so I asked the Imam, I told him, why don't you just continue with the khutbah and finish what you were saying? And then the Imam said this word, Right? The shakshaka is when a camel, the male camel, when he becomes very agitated, he foams at the mouth. This is called shakshaka. The Imam says it was nothing more than a shakshaka. It's something that came up in a moment of passion and it goes away. There's no, I'm not going to end this as a sermon. All what was said is all that will be said. I will not add anything to it. And Ibn Abbas adds, he says, there is no word that I heard from anyone in my life that I wished for them to finish more than these words from Imam Ali If only he would have finished these words, but he didn't. Because of what he was revealing, and who knows what he would say next. And when you study this khutbah, you see the, the eloquence of this khutbah. There's a reason why, by the way, there are people who think, there's a reason why when this book was put together called Nahj al the sermons of Imam Ali and his sayings and his writings. There's a reason why it's called Nahj al-Balagha. Sharif al-Ghadil, when he writes or compiles this book, he is not just saying these are sayings from Imam Ali. That was not the point of the book. Today, this is how we use it. A lot of people, they want to go to the sayings of Imam Ali alayhi salam, what did the Imam say? We go to Nahj al-Balagha, which is good. But the book was not written for that reason. He himself was a specialist in Arabic language. He looked at everything he had as a specialist from Imam Ali salam, all of his sayings, all of his sermons, all of his writings, and he said, I'm going to compile them in the order of eloquence. When you study eloquence, balagha in Arabic, you study criteria. So when you look at two pieces of writing or two sermons, you're able to say this has more eloquence than this one. We can't because we don't know this art. But he was a specialist, the Sharif Abadi in this. He was a poet and he was a very eloquent man and he was a specialist in Balagha. And he says, no one matches the Balagha of Imam Ali alayhi salam. And I will show you how by compiling a book and I will put them in the order of their Balagha. So the first sermon is more Balagha than the second and the second is more than the third and the third is more than the fourth. This is Najib Balagha. So it's not just a compilation. His only criteria was Balagha. If he wanted to use another criteria, he would have put them in a different way. And perhaps another specialist would have put them in a different way. Right? So in Nahj al-Balagha, al-Sharif al-Radi, he puts this sermon, al-Shakshafiyya, as number three. This is significant as well. There's a reason why. The expressions, the metaphors, the manner in which the Imam, the words he uses to describe all of this, they're incredible. Every word requires a whole study. Why did the Imam choose this word? Why did he say it in this way? That carries meaning. Okay? The last points I wanted to make, and I'll stop with this, is that when we say at the end, we were saying that the Imam is saying that there is a clear responsibility upon the person who carries knowledge. That responsibility is humanitarian. 
that responsibility is social, that responsibility is political. Yes, it's there. Sometimes people only take that part. And they say, therefore, every person who carries knowledge must act based on that knowledge. But if you do that, you're missing the conditions that the Imam gave. Part of the condition is that you understand you have a covenant with God. This is your religious duty, your moral duty towards the knowledge that you carry. No problem. But the Imam himself gave another set of conditions. He said, if it were not for the supporters, and were it not for the masses to come, quality and quantity of people, you have enough people who can do enough influence, enough work, now it becomes compulsory upon me to accept your khalaf. Now I must become your ruler. Because there are enough people who have come requesting it. Otherwise, the condition is not met. Otherwise, there is no duty. So the duty is not without conditions. The duty is not automatic. Just because you have knowledge equals you must therefore become a ruler and act, for instance. No. And the proof beyond the words of the Imam is the life of the Imam. That for 25 years, he did not play this role. That condition was not met. Is it because the Imam did not have the knowledge or he did not understand his duty? No, of course not. It's because this condition of having enough supporters who by themselves want the Imam to perform this role and they tell him, we will support you in performing this role, then the condition is not met. And the Imam considered this to be futile. Understood? Clear? Okay, let's stop here inshallah. With this we wrap up the topic of the duties of the scholar. I think we've been talking about this specific one for five or six lectures, inshallah, we continue the next time we meet with uh, the rights and the merits of the scholars. And inshallah, we'll go quickly over those so that we can start moving towards the types of knowledge that our religion encourages very strongly its adherence to acquire. Questions, concerns, comments? Uh, just, I don't know if you missed something because you were talking about Sheikh uh, Shatiyah, the, the speech and how he ended it when the books came. And then you were talking about Nahj al and why it was put in third. Were you just trying to say how eloquent the speech is that it got third place? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because there's about 200 and some sermons uh, in Nahj al and this is number three. So I'm, I'm simply saying that it's at the very beginning for a reason. That anyone who looks at it has to recognize, generally, for us non-specialists, we say all the sayings of the Imam are eloquent. But they're not at the same level of eloquence. Based on the criteria of eloquence, you can actually rate them. Okay, so even based on like completely objective, you know, we put religion aside, we just look objectively at Balala, this sermon, and there's a reason, like there's a link between this and the discussion I didn't want to have, which is the authenticity of this sermon. So this is one of the sermons that is directly attacked by many non-Shia. And they say this is one of the fabrications of a Sharif al-Ali. When there are proof, if you go and study the authenticity of this khutbah by itself, the Shaykh Shafiyyah, it is present 
in works, in Sunni works, 200 years before the birth of Sharif al-Abri. But it's attacked not because the chain of transmission is weak. The, the eloquence of the khutbah itself proves that it is not from Sharif al-Abri. That's a, a major criteria, in addition to the fact that we can find it in previous works. It's attacked because of the political content of the khutbah, which the Imam did not really directly address in this direct way anywhere, except in this khutbah. So it's important for us to establish that it's authentic, and it's important for others to dismiss it and to say this is a fabrication. And may the best win. Inshallah, we leave it to another time to go through it to establish its authenticity. For the Nadjul Balag al-Azabuk, we people who speak Arabic as first language and have knowledge, I can guarantee none of us has any chance, let, let's say, to see even one quarter of it. Maybe the most major ones always mentioned in lectures or Muharram or whatever, any of the scholars will bring up maybe a few of them. That was it. That's why there is, even for Arabs, people who speak Arabic language as first language, Sharah Nahj al There is need explanation for those sermons mentioned in there. And still, with so many explanatory books about it, it's not easy to read. It's, it's, it's a treasure, honestly. It's almost impossible just to read a sermon and think that you have understood everything that it says. For this lecture, I consulted many, many comment, commentaries. I'm, I'm not repeating the, everything in them. I'm just focusing on the parts that we covered. But I assure you, just for these little bits and pieces, I have to make sure that I go through many, many commentaries so that we understand it from every angle. There's layers upon layers of meaning in these sermons. And so you need people, and usually generations of scholars working. I take what you did, and then someone takes what I did, and they build on it so that we get to the full meaning of it. And this is what happens with all of these works. Was Sharif al present for the khabar that he put in the book? No, so good question, but no. Sharif al uh, came some uh, 500 years or more after Imam Ali salam. So he is coming much, much later, even more, much more later. Okay, and so he is simply compiling. He goes through the books and he finds everything that he considers to be authentic that is reliable, that he can bring back when he looks at who narrated this, in which books are they reliable or not. He goes through everything he has, and he picks and chooses the ones that he considers to be authentic, and then he puts them in this order that we see today, and we call it Nehjim Palafin. And there are full studies about how he put this together, which works he used, uh, and even in a lot of the, the sermons of Nehjim Palafin, in fact, he did not give us the full sermon. He put a part of the sermon. So this is the part that he wanted to focus on, but it has a beginning and it has an end that we don't have. And so there are books that finish that for us. They give us the, the rest of the sermon. Okay? They say, for instance, this sermon is missing the beginning. This, these two sermons in Najib al are in fact one sermon. The Imam delivered this in one place, but it was a very long sermon. Sharif Ali split it in two parts and made it into two sermons. There are full studies about all of this. So, if you're interested, this is a whole topic. You can spend your whole life studying Najib Balaga. 
but uh, yeah, so he compiled them much later. He's a scholar who uh, is very, very respected, and he his focus was on Arabic language, and uh, he was also a, a big professor, uh, and he used his understanding of the Arabic language specifically to elucidate and explain the texts of, of religion. And he had other works of theology, of aqaid and beliefs. Yeah. There were two brothers, by the way, and they worked together all the time, and they studied together, and they worked together, and one of them passed away before the other, Sharif al-Radi, and then Sharif al-Murtala. One day, maybe we tell their story. It deserves to be told. Uh, question. When Imam um, Ali says, I told the people, asking for you losing. Uh, I wonder, was it when he would, like, assume political office, or like before? I don't think that anyone has specifically said when the Imam said those words. Uh, I would assume, however, that it was most, most, most likely after. Yeah. Is there a reason why you ask, or just in general? Something I forgot what what the reason was, but something in the speech, like in the yes, and there's a duty, right? It's, it has to do with the duty to share that knowledge, and uh, and in fact, this is another disastrous calamity that instead of people asking things that were valuable, you see those who. Muawiyah had planted, they would stand up, they were well-known spies that Muawiyah had put to watch every movement of Imam Ali they would stand up and they would ask the Imam very silly questions like, how many hairs are on my head? Right? And so instead of, you know, what would you, you would dream of that situation. You would dream to see, okay, what good question did the people ask when the Imam would tell them, ask me before you lose me, I am more knowledgeable of the ways of the heavens than I am in the ways of the earth. I know the roads of the heaven better than I know the roads of the earth. Ask me. And this is a question that they ask. So. وَصَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَى سَيِّدِنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلَى آلِهِ الطَّيْبِينَ الطَّاهِرِينَ